As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Harm, a new week, and this team is still on a roll. Can you believe it? We were talking about a Canuck team that has won four straight. So much to get into on this episode of the VanCast, including Aiden McDonough, whose season at Northeastern is over, and we expect his signing with the Vancouver Canucks to be imminent. Nobody is expecting uh, anything else, right? We don't expect them to go to free agency. We do expect them to be here. Wouldn't be shocked if there was an announcement shortly after we recorded. We're not going to re-record at that point, but we do expect McDonough to be here. We will talk about that uh, later on in today's show. But the Vancouver Canucks have won four straight, an impressive 5-2 victory against Ottawa. They raced out to a 4-0 lead, uh, hung on for a couple minutes, and then uh, put it away with an empty netter to win 5-2. That is their... Uh, seventh win. They're seven, two, and one in their last ten. So just as many of us predicted, um, and, you know, and primarily because of the schedule and because we knew at some point after the trade deadline, and, and we thought maybe even before that Thatcher Demko was going to get back into the lineup. All those things have played into what really isn't a surprise: the Canucks ruining their draft position. But this is more than just a talk at bump. Uh, who's now had I think nineteen games. This is a team whose form. Within the context of those other things, the schedule and the goaltender returning, their actual overall form is getting better. Yeah, longest winning streak of the season in March when the games are when the games don't matter at all. I, I think this is the most Canucks thing ever. It's both hilarious, predictable, and painful, all three things at once. But you're right. It ha- it hasn't just been the soft schedule now, right? Because they've beaten an Ottawa team that's been really hot in 2023, had a ton of stakes to play for. It was really a must-win game for the Senators. They had so much in the line. The Canucks also not uh, not too long ago beat Toronto. They also not too long ago beat Dallas at a time where the Stars were kind of struggling and really needed to find their way again. So the Canucks have found a way to 
beat some quality opponents as well and do it in a way where they've mostly controlled play. Like I look at that Senators game and to me, when they got ahead to that lead, sure, it got a little bit, a little bit dicey once there was the delay of game penalty and, and there was only a two goal lead. But for the most part, they controlled that game. I wasn't ever really worried where earlier in the season, right? The Canucks would race out to two lead and you'd go like, you'd already know that it would, that, that it was going to fall apart, that the other team would come back. You, your first thought was, okay, they're up 2-0. They need to score at least two or three more in order to actually win this hockey game. And I didn't actually get that feeling um, watching the other night, which is, uh, which is a sign of comfort that I haven't had with this group this season. I look at the way that they've been sort of defending even in that game Barely allowed anything off the rush, right? Like, I think that's the biggest difference is that they're not trading chances in transition. You're not seeing those odd man sort of breakdowns. You're not seeing those egregious um, mistakes. And look, we'll see if they can sustain this over the over the course of next season when the games actually start mattering again. But for right now, it's it's looked pretty, pretty darn impressive. Yeah, and I don't want to run past the... Um if it carries into next season. I mean, we see this from teams on a regular basis that you play games with no pressure. Teams generally play you differently, regardless of what the stakes are for them, uh, just because you don't necessarily have um, everyone else's A game. You see a lot of backup goaltenders. Like, there's a lot of this that goes around teams that just aren't very good. And, you know, we're seeing other teams in the league right now have similar results in terms of, in terms of you know, 22 points over a 19-game sample size. Um, Anaheim and Arizona come to mind. So do we see anything here? Because a lot of people felt, you know, we're going to get so many people dunking on the media for being critical of Bruce's firing when in reality nobody in the media and, and most fans really in Canucks Twitter – weren't really criticizing the decision to fire. It was more how it was handled, right? Um, but, and we, you know, we knew that this was going to happen after the most brutal schedule stretch for the Canucks, and it was going to come before the easy stretch. And, but there were people that were suggesting that, okay, well, you know, the whole thing is they want to rebuild culture and they want to rebuild structure. That's what the organization said, that those were the priorities right now going into this. This is going to be an extended training camp, an opportunity to teach everyone what it looked like to be a Vancouver Canuck and how it looked like to play under Rick Tockett and the structure and demands that were expected. And that was going to carry into next season. Do we buy it? Because we see teams with this late surge when there is no pressure on them and they don't get the respect of their opponents. Uh, so do we think there are tangible reasons to believe what we're seeing now in terms of form will carry into next season? I'll be honest, Farhan, anybody who tells you that they know with certainty whether it's going to carry over next season or not is lying, right? Because you can see it on both sides of the coin. You look at the positive side of the spectrum you can point to the fact that the roster on paper should have been contending for a playoff spot anyway. There was no reason for them to have been as bad as they were in the first half of the season, even just on talent on paper. Demko should bounce back, and we've seen that. That's something that we should expect moving forward. They are legitimately playing better, more organized. They're not making nearly as many boneheaded mistakes. They will get a lot of help by adding Philip Peronic on the rights of the blue line. And in the offseason, look, it could require pain in terms of buyouts, retentions, and sweeteners. You're going to have to pay the, the bill for it 
later down the line. But if management really wants, they will ha- they will be able to carve out at least some cap space to say add an, another top four defenseman and, and at least shore up another couple holes. But then on the other side, it's like we saw this play out with Bruce Brujo last season. And like you alluded to, I don't value games where there's no pressure the same way, where there's zero expectations for whatever's happened recently. We can't ignore the fact that this team choked in October. The whole narrative around training camp going into the season was a slow start has killed us the last two years in a row. We know we have to hit the ground running. We can't dig ourselves an early hole. They still went 0-5 on that first road trip. Became, mm-hmm. what was it, like the first NHL team in, in history to blow start a season by blowing multi-goal leads and losing in re- regulation in three consecutive games, right? Like, they, it wasn't just that they lost all, all five of those games. It was that they would build these leads, choke and collapse under the pressure, right? So they folded, they buckled. And I, I just like that, that. That's something that still sticks with you, right? So like the, it's kind of apples and oranges with these games down the stretch. And especially the other thing to kind of keep in mind too is early on, you're always, I shouldn't say always, but generally speaking, when you look at, um, when you look at the data, there usually is a, co- a coach's bump when a new guy is brought in, right? Everybody buys in early, especially because players are trying to make a first impression, right? It's a, a blank slate, fresh start for every player on the roster. You're, you're highly incentivized to try and leave a really good impression and, and show that you're buying in and doing exactly what the coach wants. We'll see if that buying in commitment will last over the course of an 82 game season next year. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. You can point to reasons on both sides of the spectrum, but until they can show that this is real in October, we're not going to know. Yeah, you're right. It, like at the end of the day, all signs point to it being better, right? I mean, you know, you mentioned. Um, you know, the tangible improvement in play, there are certain players who simply are going to be themselves, right? I mean, there's there's moments from a guy like Tyler Myers where we see, a, you know, a couple games of, you know, low event hockey, and then all of a sudden we see, you know, who the player is. And there are others on the, on the lineup that are just like that, right? Um, you know, we certainly expect a guy like Oliver Ekman Larson, if there's going to be a buyout candidate, it's probably going to be him. Um and uh, that, you know, that'll save them cap-wise next season to the point where they can add somebody. Uh, Demko, I fully expect to bounce back. You know, I think what we saw from him at the start of the year was a bit of an anomaly and more of, uh, you know, more of um, the mental recovery from injury than than uh, physical diminished play or anything like that, right? So I do think there's certain things that are going to point in the right direction. You know, we still haven't seen Mikheyev. Uh, you know, who obviously we saw him in October last season. We saw him through Christmas, but, you know, he's going to get back in the lineup. There's going to be a number of things that can augment this team um, to uh, to get to where they need. I think we can still see them roll out, you know, three legitimate sets of wingers when the dust settles. Uh, I think now you've got guys, that, and we'll get into them a bit later, but Dakota Joshua knows them on. And, you know, we, we've seen so many bottom six forwards masquerading as top six forwards. These guys could be a really good fourth line or two-thirds of a really good fourth line for the team next year that could that could chip in and give them meaningful minutes and, and all those kinds of things. Like, There's a lot of things that are pointing to that direction, but let's see what happens when the pressure's on, to your point, right? Um, 
The only guy I wonder if he could sustain what he's doing is Kuzmenko. Like, the guy's been ridiculous, right? Whereas Petey, we know, is going to be Petey. And and Quinn Hughes, we know, is going to be Quinn Hughes. But there are going to be some others that I'm curious to see if they can play the same way again. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what this group looks like after a training camp with pressure and expectation. And everything's pointed in the right direction. But until they do it, we just don't know. And, you know, so you, you can't get too far ahead of yourselves and – um, I know that uh, this is probably going to massage the, the hurt, the anger from season ticket holders. You know, and, and I've said that in terms of process, nothing's going to change around this team until fans stop coming. And what's happened is, is that they've given the reasons for the reason for the fans to come again in the fall. Uh, rightly or wrongly, that will happen. People will believe that what we're seeing under the new head coach will carry into the fall. And we'll see if it does. But, you know, organizationally, you know, that's the one thing that's going to potentially require change. But what we also know, you know, we're talking about the positive signs of all of this first. We do know that Team Tank is dead, right? Like, it's, there's no coming back from this. 7-2-1 uh, and one in their last 10 games. Um, right now, there's, you know, the bottom four spots, in my opinion, in the league seem to be unreachable for this group, right? Like, it's, um, you know, when you, when you look at it, uh, you know, in terms of the gap and everything like that, you know, the bottom four teams uh, in order from bottom to top are going to be Columbus, San Jose, Chicago, and Anaheim. Even Anaheim is playing better. They're five, two, and three in their last 10. But, uh, you know, I think the gap, because Vancouver is uh, seven points up on Anaheim entering the day, Anaheim's played two more games. So that, you know, helps Vancouver. But, you know, when you look at it, uh, above them, you know, I don't think even on this run, right? Like, who are they going to catch? They probably can't, can catch St. Louis, right? And St. Louis is playing poorly. Vancouver is playing better right now, but Detroit is eight points ahead of Vancouver right now. I don't know that they're catching Detroit at this at this stage. Uh, who's in twenty fourth? Vancouver's in twenty fifth. So right now, to me, the range is twenty four to twenty eight. Um, what's the what's the percentage? I think it's about I think there's about a two and a half percent difference. You'd have to correct me if I'm wrong, between 24th and 28th in, in terms of lottery odds. Is that about right? To me, the, the difference in odds in terms of landing the number one or number two pick isn't as significant as just being able to guarantee that you're, you'll, you'll get a higher pick. You know what I mean? Like in yeah, terms yeah. of being you know fifth or sixth as opposed to eighth or ninth. Right? Sure. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm looking at this. And even in terms of like, I'd, I'd even be really surprised if, if they find a way to get as low as 27th or 28th with the way that they're playing and, and the way that and, and how undermanned the teams blow them are. Right. You look at, for example, Arizona. It was interesting because I was looking at this data over the weekend, looking at uh, the, the best and worst top pairs in the NHL this season in terms of gold. Arizona was surprisingly top 10 because of how well Jacob Chikrin had been playing. Uh, and meshing with Shane Goss's bear, well, both players got dealt at the deadline. They traded their entire top pair away, which was such a driving force for them. It was playing at uh, at a level in terms of goal differential that was top ten in the NHL, right? So that has a significant impact um, impact on them. Phillies lost three straight. When you look at when you compare Vancouver and Phillies rosters, paper like it, it was shocking that Philly was ever above Vancouver for as long as, as they were. The Canucks on paper are so much stronger. And, and same thing with Montreal. Now that they've um, 
now that Cole Caulfield for a while has been done for the season, their best goal scorer. So I'm looking at the combination of these factors. And at this point, I'm just hoping that they don't pass St. Louis. The other thing to keep in mind is Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin had to know that, that this was a possibility, right? Sure. Experienced, to know, experienced enough to know when you bring in a new full-time head coach, you're probably to get an initial bump. Part of that has to do with the new coach, of course. Part of that also has to do with every guy. It's it's a kick in the rear that, okay, I, I've, I've got to get my stuff together. I've got to prove that I'm worth keeping, keeping around. I got to get, get in the coach's good books. That sort of leads me to, like, when we were talking about talking initially getting hired, a lot of our conversation was centered around the idea that, okay, it's it chosen 30 games left in the season to bring in, right? Like, I think we were saying, if you wanted to fire Boutreau, absolutely do it. Do that in timely fashion. Don't leave him hanging in the wind. But then let Mike, maybe, then maybe let Mike Yo take over on, a, on an interim basis and then hire Talkit with, let's say, a few games left in the season so it does minimal damage to the tank. But that, that shows you how much they value next season, right? Which aligns with what they did at the deadline in terms of acquiring Philip Peronik. They're essentially okay with picking lower in this year's draft and trading that for Talkit having a longer time to establish the culture, the accountability, the structure that he wants so that so that the that the team can hit the ground running for next season. Yeah, you're right. And it's interesting because I remember when we went in and talked to Jim Rutherford about uh, the Tanner Pearson situation, right? And the medical staff was there. And one of the things he did say is that, yeah, we can, as a front office, make moves that are reflective of the draft, right? And and that's not to suggest that they were going to rebuild, right? Like we, we've debated that. It could just be make decisions for the draft so that we can get the higher pick, but then all the other decisions that they would make would line up towards a shorter term process. Right. So, you know, the, the timing of it all, you know, we're going to debate it and, it, you know, we're certainly past that point, but um, when you look at it, it's probably hit a number of agendas, right? Because we certainly believe that ownership is driving uh, the, the timeline, right? The short term, uh, build or short-term retool versus rebuild, but all of those things are hit because now, again, the way this team's playing, they're still going to be in that bottom group. They can't be in the bottom four anymore, but they, you know, they're still in a position to potentially be low enough. They've still managed to get set up for next year with with culture and structure, and they've managed to win enough games to make the owners happy that maybe we'll keep it, we'll retain a few more season tickets, right? Like, is there has there been a downside to how it's played out relative to what the club's value of next year is? Yeah, the way you laid it out, I, I think that is a priority as opposed to trying to maximize every percentage possible and picking at fourth or fifth as opposed to ninth, right? So, no, absolutely. I think you're bang on correct there. Before we go to uh, take a quick break, I do want to talk about one thing Talkett said. Um, let's get into it fairly quickly, and that's Brock Besser. He talked about this uh, the other day in the morning of uh, of the Ottawa game, and he suggested that 
you know, uh, he, he thinks Brock's doing a lot of things, was pretty pointed about the fact he thought he was still inconsistent, uh, needed to get in the forecheck more. It can't just be him waiting for JT Miller to do all that work, and he's got to get a bit more consistent defensively. But he still felt that there was enough positive, and he wanted to be involved with his offseason. And, you know, he, I asked him about, you know, how do you manage that with a guy that is, you know, clearly wants to leave? And he said, well, maybe he'll have a change of heart, right? Maybe he'll things will go so well for him down the stretch that he'll want to come back um, what do you see from, were you, A, were you surprised about the comments? And B, what do you see from Besser? Because I'll tell you, when I posted that comment on Twitter, the reaction I got back from Canucks Twitter was pretty negative towards the player, right? And just a reiteration about just how bad the player's skating is, how unengaged he is, certainly no sympathy for anything that he's been through. You know, from my perspective, I do think they should move him, but I'm I'm not on the Besser sucks, get him out of here narrative. That's not where I'm at. I do think there's a little bit more for this player to give. I just don't think he's going to give it here anymore. And I'm not telling you he's intentionally checked out. I just feel that the best of him won't happen until there's a change of scenery. I think Besser's a good guy. I think he's been through a lot. I think many of us hope that he'd be able to put a lot of what he'd been through behind him this year, you know, because his dad had passed and it happened, you know, in the off season and, you know, he's, he's had some time and that, and he himself has said that, that I'm really looking forward to this season. And this is the season I'm going to bounce back. And yet there were more injuries. I just think that Besser's a good guy and I hope he's able to rebuild his career and get closer to his potential elsewhere. This is not a get him out of here. I just, I like Brock Besser. I want Brock Besser to do well, but I, I think it's going to happen elsewhere. I think a lot of fans are kind of in that uh, boat. First of all, I'm not too surprised to hear Tockett say that because he's been a pretty blunt, straight shooter. And really what he spoke was was bang on correct in, in terms of assessing Besser's game where it's like there's another level of lock. We need more from him in terms of the details because you think back to for example, the 2019-20 season or even the, the year after, part of the appeal around Besser was he'd rounded his game out. Now, all of a sudden, he is winning board battles at a really high rate. Again, I remember seeing the um, the, the statistic from Instats data where Besser was among the best forwards in uh, in the league in, in terms of the percentage of puck battles that he, that he was winning. He was really effective, effective on the forecheck as well. Those elements... It, it isn't just the goal scoring. We've seen those two elements completely erode as well to where he's not doing it on a consistent enough basis. And yeah, I mean, it's I still it's still strange to me how he's put up as many points as he has, because on a night to night basis, it is really tough to notice him sometimes. I mean, you might see the odd chance in uh, in the slot, but he hasn't been clinical with this finishing. But also beyond that. We're just not seeing him make an impact um, or, or stand out in, in a significant enough way. He's invisible on a lot of nights. So it's uh, it, it's been tough. And ultimately, you're right. Like They just need to figure out a fresh start, not only for his sake, but also for the team now, especially with how much money they have tied up on, on the wings, how much talent they have. They find a way to reallocate um, reall reallocate that uh, that money but for that to happen they need him to hopefully catch at least some fire at the end of uh, at the end of the season so that teams can at least see a spark see some reason to believe that it could be different if they acquire him yeah I think there was a four or five game point streak a few weeks ago and really nothing since and 
for all that said, as much as I want for the player that he's able to get that fresh start, I wouldn't offer a sweetener. I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. I mean, he can he can still bring relative value compared to some other players that are going to roll out there in their top nine. Right. He's not going to be a big drop off from all but maybe two of their wingers. Right. So I'd like to while I'd like to see the move on for pennies on the dollar, I wouldn't give a sweetener at all. I wouldn't retain money at all. If it comes to that, fine, come back here, right? And then we'll sit, we'll try again next year where there's less term on your deal, right? But I, I don't think there'll be a significant drop-off between Brock Besser and, you know, all forwards, all wingers not named Kuzmenko. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, independent brings a lot of value, which in today's world, you can't really, like, it's, it's nearly impossible to be able to separate the two. I think what you mentioned, though, in terms of, like you, you have no interest in, for example, retaining. I think that's where it become it, it would become difficult potentially. I could see a, a situation, at least sort of just like thinking out loud logically, where it's like let's say a team is interested, they're willing to give you an asset for Besser as a player, but they're like retain one million, right? Like at that point, like that's something that I would consider if the asset is valuable enough, and a and b if. I look at that open cap space and I think that there's something meaningful that I can do with it, right? If if you look at the market at the, at the time of that possibility opening in terms of free agency, in terms of trade opportunities, and you go, well, there's not a lot on the uh, available on the market realistically that we could do with this chunk of change, then you might go, all right, it's it's not worth it to retain it at all. Hang on to him, hopefully rehabilitate his value, try and move him down, down the line. The... The other other side of that, you know, five and a half million that you might open in cap space if you retain a million in, in, in a sort of trade. If you look at that and go, that could help us land a, a real meaningful difference difference maker, somebody who can move the needle and we can't acquire that sort of peace unless we're able to move on from a player like ben. then then you might have to really consider it. Then then a move at might have um, might have value for you. And uh, round this out with Tockett's comments, he did finish by saying, whether it's here or elsewhere, he's got to be better. Truer words were never spoken. When we come back, we'll talk about the newest soon-to-be Canuck winger, Aiden McDonough. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Harm, before we get into the Aiden McDonough conversation, let's talk a little bit about just how the Canucks are deploying their top players. And obviously, you know, Talkett has admitted that he's competitive and that he wants to win. And even when we've seen moments of Pod Colson and Kravtsov playing late in games and playing in overtime, we're still seeing heavy minutes going 
to Vancouver's top players. So just going back to the Ottawa game where that was a comfortable win. I mean, it was 4 nothing till well into the third period. I think six and a half minutes left when Ottawa started scoring. And, you know, we're still looking at uh, 22-22 for JT Miller. We're still talking about over 24 minutes for Elias Pettersson. We're still talking about well over 28 minutes for Quinn Hughes. If he doesn't get the late penalty, he probably gets to the 30-minute mark. Uh, are we surprised that they're still going this heavy with the stakes being this low? I'm definitely surprised. I mean, you look at the last 10 games, Hughes has averaged 27-40. That's the most minutes of any player in the league. Nobody is managing a heavier workload in the NHL right now besides Quinn Hughes. In the last 10 games, Pedersen has averaged 22.05. That's the most minutes of any forward in the league besides Connor McDavid. Even look at, at uh, JT Miller right now. He's seventh among all NHL forwards in that sort of 10-game stretch. And the gap between him and, and number four, Nick Suzuki, is only five seconds. Right, So he's <laughs> knocking on that door as well. So you've got Three Canucks players right now in terms of your top guys who are logging extremely high high numbers here in terms of their usage, to me, this is unnecessary mileage, right? To, to me, I'm thinking, save this for next season when the games actually matter, especially because this is the end of an, an 82-game grind, right? This isn't happening at the start of a season. This is happening when inevitably over the course of the type of travel that this team has to go through being a West Coast team, all the games that they've already played, you're inevitably going to have knocks, nicks, bruises. It just happens, right? I, I just worry and, and hope that you're not at a point where you're risking any sort of injury, any sort of wearing a guy down. And obviously, you're going to have the summer to sort of... um sort of recover and, and so it's not a huge concern but i just don't under don't understand why it should um it should be such a high priority I, again especially when you have a player like Vasily pod colson who against the senators log eight minutes and five seconds right yeah. in, a, in a in at a time where games don't matter development should be uh, be the priority but this is again where you get to the point where i'm w wondering the same thing you were where it's like is this team trying to sell hope for next season get people to buy in, ensure that season ticket renewals go well. I wonder if that's part of um, part of the equation. We, I mean, I don't know. We we would never sort of know with... Uh, with I, hey, look, I, I think you're bang on. We're certainly allowed to speculate that. It, it, it makes no sense why these guys... Number one, like, imagine in the 24th minute of a game, at least Pedersen gets hurt. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that criticism will come back to bite the team or Quinn Hughes playing 29 minutes of a game and late in the third period, Quinn Hughes gets hurt. That it, like you want to be criticized as an organization that's going to top the list right now. So I'm not suggesting you put these guys in bubble wrap, but let them play like regular minutes. And I don't mean regular for them, regular for most, you know, top players in the league or just get them down to, you know, get Pedersen down to, to 20 minutes, get, Hughes yeah. down to 23 or 24 minutes, right? Like we're not talking about putting these guys on the bench. Um, but yeah, and, and the younger guys that you mentioned could probably use a bit of ice. I mean, generally, I haven't been overly critical of how they've handled it. I mean, you know, I still would like to see Nils Hoaglander get some games up here, right? And and I certainly think that um, they're doing a good job in Abbotsford getting these guys to, to play similar systems and, and doing 
the things the organization wants them doing going forward. Certainly there's alignment there, especially with Ryan Johnson. But I'd like to see Nils Hoaglander get up here. And I'd like to see what Jack Rathbone can do with the current structure. Right. And and I don't know that there's much more than that because the young, you know, the young, the AHL defensemen that they're playing, and we'll talk about them a little bit later, those guys are mid-20s, right? Like they're not young prospects in this organization. So if all of a sudden you decide you want Jack Rathbone to be a sweetener for another trade down the road, how about you get his value where you need it to be? Right. Um, you know, if you thought that Nils Hoaglander was was showing offensive flashes but wasn't doing enough defensively, you've given Pod Colson his opportunity. Do the same with Hoaglander. Like, is there a contractual reason for them not to have him up here for a small number of games right now? Is there a is there a waiver risk in having him up here and having to go back? I'm pretty sure there isn't. So why isn't he here? And, and look, it's not a deep prospect pool. So it's not like there's a number of egregious decisions going on. But this could be, there, you know, there could be a couple. And again, just within the theme of play some of these other guys less, play a few of these other guys more. But I, I, I do think that winning now is the reason. Yeah, with Hoaglander, I, I disagree personally. I, I think he strikes me as the sort of player whose confidence got pretty low when you look at the version we saw of him as a rookie compared to what we saw from him under Bruce Boudreau, just in the sense that you could see it in his finishing a lot of the time, right? Where he, he he's looking a lot more nervous. He's missing the sort of chances that... I don't think he ever looked hesitant about. So you're talking about like, his NHL now? career, yeah, yeah. But again, he's been down there the entire season, right? Like, hasn't I, been I, that long. I don't. It hasn't been the entire season. No, but it's they got they got sent down pretty early in the process. Both those guys. You also got to remember that Hoaglander he missed a lot of development time in terms of what a typical second round pick should have gotten with American League time or even even more time in Sweden. He was fast-tracked to the NHL because of a situation where all he had to do was beat out Louis Erickson and Jake Vertanen for top six spot. And the organization has acknowledged that even when we had our conversation with Ryan Johnson on the podcast last year, that, hey, some of these guys are probably fast-tracked and that, in hindsight, they probably needed more seasoning in the American League. So for him, yeah, I just... I, I'd, He's cooking there. He's building confidence. He's scoring goals every game now. Like, uh, well, that's him. my point, right? Is that look, I believe that there was value to sending him there. I'm not being critical of the decision to send him there and mm -hmm. to have him down there for the majority of the season. But as you're, as you want, if you think Nils Hoaglander is on your NHL roster next season, and I think he should be, right? This year has been valuable for him, but that doesn't mean that 10 games back in the NHL. At the end of the season, with that confidence having been built because of how good he's playing there and having the head coach see him and having him learn the structure and the system and be awfully motivated to make an impression, both offensively in terms of his finish, as you mentioned, and defensively where his game was lacking prior to being sent down, get him up here. Now, if you're only going to play him eight minutes, there's no point. But I'd like to see him up here. I'd like to see Rathbone up here. And I'd like to see them at least getting double digits for, for minutes, right? Like get them 11 or 12 minutes. We're not talking about 20, but I think there's value to that too in terms of his development. And again, I'm, this is not me saying he should be up here. They were right for sending him down. You know, I, I think when we talked back in August, you know, I know when I had a chance to talk to Jim Rutherford at one point, like they were saying that, look, it's not the worst thing for these guys to spend time down there. And you're, you're right, but... That's happened, and I'm not saying it's done. He's still going to play for the. For, he's still going to play for Ottawa, in the, or sorry, for Ottawa for Abby in the playoffs. 
right? Like those minutes are still going to be there, but to get him back up here for a small sample size and to get another taste with the eyes of the new head coach on him can't be a negative, can it? Sure. If you're talking about like eight, nine, ten games left Max. in the season, you decide to bring him. Yeah, okay, Max. that's fair. I'll agree, I'll agree with you on I'm that. I'm not telling I'll... you he's back to being a full-time NHLer. I didn't yeah, su- no. suggest that for a minute. I-, I thought you were more suggesting that it, it needed to happen like right now, like with, no, no. you know, however many games. But yeah, like eight, nine, ten games left. Yeah, for sure. Especially with like if a guy like Kravtsov continues to not show a whole lot and Hoaglander continues sort of lighting up the lamp, yeah, if, if you know, give him several games down the stretch to to make an impression, let the head coach see. I, I 100% agree with you on that. Well, because you're also going to get another young guy here who hasn't earned his time. Aiden McDonough, as we get as we get to our next topic, and you know, we're expecting his signing to be imminent here, and we expect him in Vancouver in a matter of days. Um, solid regular season at Northeastern, 38 points in 34 games. Season ended uh, in the Hockey East uh, Tournament quarterfinal this weekend. Uh, he was a nominee for the Hobie Baker Award. So, boy, the Canucks sure know how to draft in the seventh round, right? Um, point is, he's coming right to Vancouver. And I know part of that kind of, it has to happen a certain way. But for him to come to Vancouver, he's going to be a young guy. Uh, you know, I'm, again, a player that should probably get eight or nine minutes for the first couple of games. But eventually, I'd like to see him play 10 or 12 minutes. And let's see what he really looks like. Um, what are we expecting from McDonough? Take me through his game and what Canuck fans should look for. Yeah, I don't think that he's necessarily going to be ready for a full-time NHL spot next season, like right from October. That's not what I'm expecting. If it happens that way, if his development is accelerated, perfect. That's that's awesome. The team could always use more ELC contributors, but st- still in the big picture, I think he's got legit bottom six potential. Now, it's important not to get ahead of ourselves and suggest anything more yet, just because we saw with Adam Gaudet, right? Won the Hobie Baker after his junior season. He had 60 points in 38 games as, you know, a year younger than McDonough is right now as a senior. And he um, he didn't become anything more than than a bottom six player. That's look like that still had value, right? Like I've seen some people suggesting that Gaudet was a bust or, you know, didn't turn into anything, which isn't exactly true because he still gave the Canucks a lot of NHL games. And even if it was just one season, he put up, I think it was 33 points in the 1920 campaign. He gave him, he centered a sheltered bottom six line. He was a major contributor for the second power play unit. Like that was the year where the Canucks were able to squeak into the playoffs like that. That sort of, you know, value has um, impact has value. I should say now with McDonough, I think he's intriguing because, first of all, he's got good size to him, but it's also the other qualities in terms of the great shot and the good instincts for getting open, which is key to me, right? Sometimes you have a situation with players in college or lower levels in junior where they have the great shot, but you wonder about how it's going to translate at the NHL level where you look at the the other tools in their skill set and you're like, sure, it's easy to find space to uncork your shot in the NCAA or in junior, but how are you going to do it at the NHL level? Like, do you have separation speed as an offensive player or like what other traits do you have that will ensure that you actually get time and space? Because like we've seen it with, um, with a lot of, with a lot of players over the course of time, they find it so much harder to get time and space to actually, uh, actually pick their spots. And this is where, where with McDonough, 
his instincts in being able to find soft soft parts of the ice he, I I'm a big fan of of those types of instincts and that's go, going to be key for a player who isn't exactly um a, a burner so so that combination for me in terms of the size the offensive smarts and the good shot to me it makes him hard to defend down low uh, off of the cycle the other interesting part that I'm really curious to see the see the status of is um is his board play because at least at the NCAA level, the reports that you know I'd so, sort of gotten was that he's got a deta- solid detail-oriented style along those boards. He's got a high battle rate. That's important because Rick Tockett's spoken a lot about how he wants more sort of wall guys, right? Guys who can win battles along the boards, who have some size and oomph to them, who can contribute on the forecheck. Again, I'm not expecting that this impact will necessarily be instantaneous, but McDonough, at least as a prospect, seemed like he was further a- ahead in that process of learning some of those details than prospects who are usually, let's say, 21 or 22 years old um, typically are. Uh, again, in terms of, you know, you look at the other side of the coin in terms of what he needs to work on, it's a skating, right? Like keeping up and adjusting to the NHL speed is going to be his um, his uh, biggest challenge, but he's a legitimately intriguing prospect. And it's a big win for the organization that they've gotten to the point now where uh, he's going to be part of um, of uh, of the long term future as opposed to. I mean, if you asked me last summer, I was legitimately worried. I would have figured, you know, I was looking at it as a 50 50 in terms of whether he was going to sign here or not. And now there's some other potential NCAA guys that are that are on the radar. And, you know, this is the thing with him, like especially you mentioned the fact that he went back, played a senior season. He's now 23. So generally with guys that spend their full NCAA eligibility or even three of the four years, uh, you do wonder what the ceiling is, right? And I think most observers feel that he's going to be, as you mentioned, a bottom six, maybe a middle six uh, winger at best, but probably, you know, he turns into a third line winger and can provide value for for a lot of years. But uh, the team's also in the mix on some other free agents, uh, some forwards, some defensemen, some, uh, you know, right shot D, some local players. Take us through some of the names and uh, and what we can expect. Yeah, I think right off the bat, Jake Livingston is uh, is a player. It's a right shot defenseman who's um, who's pretty intriguing to me. Seems as if the Canucks have a, a decent shot um, at landing him. We'll, we'll see. There's obviously going to be a lot of teams uh, interested. The one thing that uh, I know Transfers brought up that I sort of am curious to sort of um, see how this dynamic unfolds is organization seems to be pretty high on Philip Johansson, who's having a big season uh, in Sweden. Johansson, of course, was Minnesota's late first rounder in 2018. He was a reach at the time. Like everybody was like looking around as as if to say, really, they selected him in the first round. So he's not really a first round caliber prospect. Uh, Minnesota, of course, decided not to not to sign him. And they picked up a compensatory draft pick as uh, as a result of that. But he's had a, a solid year logging some pretty big minutes over in the SHL. So if you look at a player like that and go as a young player, he may be in the mix for you know signing him to an ELC and and contending for um, you know pushing for a roster spot in a depth role or at least being a major contributor in Abbey. Like I wonder if that um, if that uh, affects uh, affects the way that um, a player would look at. Um, 
the opportunity here, right? Because typically that's the biggest thing that uh, an org- organization like Vancouver can um, can offer is the opportunity to be able to sort of compete for NHL minutes uh, right out of the gate. So I- I'm curious to see because that's that's one thing that um, in this process, from having spoken to NCAA guys that have gone through this um, courting process before, that's what they do in terms of like, they'll go through team by team, looking at the depth chart, looking at, okay, how uh, how feasible is a path to the NHL? Are we going are we going to face roadblocks? And so uh, I'm curious to see how like you know like a player like Livingston's camp like how they view that uh, that dynamic. But there are also some um, you know a couple of center names that uh, that could be available. So we'll see at other positions. But you know, it seems like there there are I, I think the indication that we've gotten at least for the scout public scouting industry who would know a lot more about this than uh, than I would or or you would or or anybody else who covers the Vancouver Canucks. They've been saying that it's a pretty strong crop crop of NCAA prospects as a whole. So um, I'm interested to see what kind of uh, noise uh, the Canucks are are hopefully able to make and 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 maybe they're in a they're in a position position where they can sign a guy or two. Yeah, Johansson, or sorry, let's start with Livingston, who's uh, from the Fraser Valley. He was born in Creston, played his junior hockey in the Valley, plays at Minnesota State Mankato right now. 6'3", 205-pound right shot D. Uh, Canucks are also in the mix for Cornell defenseman Sam Molinsky, who's another right-handed defenseman, a little bit smaller. And you mentioned Philip Johansson as well, uh, a right-handed defenseman. So obviously that's the organization's biggest need right now. You've also got uh, Akito Hiroshi. Am I saying that name right? Um, that uh, that is uh, that plays with Livingston on the left side. So you know, obviously, defense is a is a big priority. And there's also a couple of center names as well in and around all of that. Do you get the sense that they're they're favored for any of them? That any of them are a long shot? That any of them are you know potentially NHL ready sooner than later? I mean, you've got to like a player like Livingston size for sure. Uh, I've read some reports that you know that his skating is is pretty solid for a player his size. But that that's obviously an area that that he still needs to work on. What like, you know, what should their priorities be? Well, I think big picture, like you mentioned, in terms of where are some of these guys leaning. I, I don't think we're at the point now where that activity is really like that. That'll ramp up over the next week or two, especially as more teams become uh, become eliminated. In terms of of a priority, I mean, like any, anywhere, whether it's like particularly center or anywhere on the back end, like that's why not add more prospects? I think if you have more wing guys, you're looking at a spot where it's like, okay, like we're pretty well stocked up there. We've, we've, we're in a position where even with our own sort of winger prospects, it's becoming, um, it's becoming a, a pretty significant log jam. And I'm sure again, teams will sort of, or uh, a lot of these representatives will look at the winger situation in Vancouver and and they'll maybe be more reluctant, but yeah, there are plenty of, whether it's centers or right shot defensemen, left shot defensemen, they should be in on anything they can get if they believe that that player has um, the potential to provide NHL value down the road. Yeah, Max Sasson is the the main center candidate that uh, Drancer and Dollywall have mentioned in their article about NCAA players uh, out of Western Michigan, a 22-year-old there uh, that's a right shot, so We'll see if they can land one or two of these guys. I mean, even one at this point, because it sounds like a number of these prospects, while the Canucks are definitely in on them, so are at least a dozen NHL teams. So Vancouver's got their work cut out for them. But opportunity, of course, is their big selling point. And, you know, we, we talk about McDonough uh, as well as, um, you know, as a, as a 
important player for this organization. And you're right. I mean, he's going to come here. Uh, he'll burn the first year of his entry-level deal. But I think there's a real possibility that the bulk of next season for him gets spent developing in Abbotsford before he eventually circles back. But with any of these NCAA players, you expect or hope to see them sooner than later. And they're at, look, it's not like NCAA free agents are gold, right? They're just opportunities. There's not a huge number of these guys that have, that have come in and made a major impact that weren't previously drafted, right? I mean, I think Chris Tanev uh, is a name that comes to mind. Tyler Bozak is a name that comes to mind. But there there aren't a lot of them that come in here in the last 20 years in, into this league and make a big impact right out of the gate or even a big long-term impact. Sure, yeah. I mean, you're hoping, even if you find, like, the next Troy Stetcher, right? Like, that that still has, a, you know, that, that really moves the needle because it's not just you find those guys and they provide whatever value they do. They're going to do it at a really cheap rate because of their entry-level contract and having cost-controllable years beyond that, right? Like, like hypothetically, I, I don't know. I don't even know if this type of player exists, but let's say there was a scenario where you're able to find uh, another sort of depth centerman who is a right shot, can win face-offs, and helps you on the penalty kill. Even if it's a guy that is a 13th forward for you who is just competing for a spot with Nils Oman, like, that could help you if um if there are injuries if if there are injuries or if you need you know if the penalty penalty kill is really struggling and you and you're and you're looking at a guy that you want to fill a, a niche role to win draws and be able to help you um defensively those sorts of depth roles on the back end I guess maybe it's not as much of a um you know maybe it's not as much of a pressing need because some of these Abbotsford guys have shown that they can hold down depth roles but. Yeah, like anything you can do to juice the the val the value of of your of your organization's depth, I think is meaningful because over the course of the season things happen and guys end up in unexpected spots in the lineup. Look at last season, right, where the Canucks were battling for their playoff lives, and Alex Chason had to play in a in a top line role essentially with Elias Patterson. Who would have thought that at the start of the season, when Chason was initially signed to a PTO, that the club would be relying on him in a huge sort of playing with Elias Pettersson role in meaningful games to try and make the playoffs, right? Like that, that's just what happens over the course of the season where unexpectedly things happen. And, and sometimes it's, you need that next man up mentality. So absolutely. I think those, those guys, even if they're not like, you know, top six forwards or top four defenders, they can still hold significant value for an organization. You mentioned that there might not be as big a need for bottom end forwards because of some of what the Abbotsford players have been doing or some of the, you know, the offseason pickups have been doing. I want to ask you a bit more about those guys when we come back. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. 
So Harm, Dakota Joshua, Nils Oman, Sheldon Dries, Phil DiGiuseppe, who just got a new two-year contract. All these guys have impressed me. Like, I mean, I think that all four of them uh, should make a case to be here next year. Um, I think they're all best suited in a fourth line role. I, I know that uh, DiGiuseppe has been getting a lot of ice time um, on a uh, on a second line. And, you know, we're seeing Sheldon Dries up and down the lineup as well. Um, who's impressed you the most and who do you think is the biggest ceiling? Yeah, I mean, ceiling wise, I think all of them are still fourth liners, but th- like they've been really good. And the difference between having, let's say, a modest, a modestly below average fourth line and a modestly above average fourth line can have can can really have value for a team next season that we expect is going to be fighting tooth and nail for one of the final playoff spots in uh, in the West. Those the, the differences on the margin sort of add up. And for me, in terms of the immediate standout, it's been for his entire body of work this season to go to Joshua. Mm-hmm. The way that he's been able to already chip in with nine goals in 62 games. If you're able to get a player who can chip in like he's probably going to hit 10 goals here. A guy who can hit 10 goals on the fourth line like that, like that means means something legitimate because for a long time we've seen back when, for example, Jay Beagle was uh, was on the fourth line or w- like after Antoine Roussel had sort of after the ACL injury and his knee wasn't the same, the offensive um, the, the fourth line had become a bit of a black hole offensively. So to be able to have a player like Dakota Joshua, who is able to add that offense, still bring size and some level of um, of physicality, who is competent defensively, who has some level of skill too, and in, in just being able to make plays generally, absolutely. Like I think he's been an excellent find for this team. But up and down, it's like I go and and all those guys have have made a case to be part of the solution for X season because Nils Oman, for example, I look at the playmaking since, for example, the Dallas game, that's where it first stood out to me. I'm going, this guy's making plays that I never saw at at, uh, at the start of the season. And again, it's still within the capacity capacity of a fourth line role. But all of a sudden, if you see that level of playmaking combined with Joshua's um, hands and finishing touch around the net, that's where you see more goals like so, like some of the ones recently where it's like Amon and Joshua are feeding off each other and setting each other up and they're elevating one another. So that's great to see. That's exactly exactly what you want out of a fourth out of a fourth line. Sheldon Dries also hitting 10 goals. I mean, as a depth contributor, 10 goals might not seem a lot, but to get that out of a guy who most of us expected to probably spend more time in Abbotsford than in Vancouver, that's uh, that's huge. And to have that versatility and being able to play both center and um and wing it matters i mean he was holding down and you definitely don't want him in this sort of of a position next season when games actually matter but as a placeholder he had to play third line minutes and at least he wasn't a total sort of train wreck he definitely wasn't the solution there but it wasn't like uh like we like it wasn't bad enough that we were talking oh my god look at how bad that third that third line is right now with shoulder dries like they've got to find an immediate fix like you need players like that that can sort of um, plug holes in DiGiuseppe as well. Absolutely. I think he can be uh, a competitor for um, for a fourth-line role. The, the question for me now is going to be going into next season, who can potentially separate themselves as a penalty killer as well? Because that's what this team is probably... That's what it's probably going to come down to because 
Like all these guys can provide a little bit of offense in uh, in a sort of bottom six role. All of them are competent defensively at five on five. Now all of a sudden it's going to be one of the biggest teams, one of the team's biggest priorities for next season has to be shoring up the shorthanded play. Who's going to differentiate themselves among some of these depth guys? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think in Nils Amon's case, you've also got to improve on your faceoffs, right? Like that's 100%. that's got to be an area that uh, they can roll you out there at critical times in games, and you can at least give them that. But he's shown a lot of other elements uh, to make for a quality bottom line center, right? And for me, Dakota Joshua tops the list because primarily his size. And yeah. The guy's got really good hands for a player his size. We have seen some goal scorer goals. And even, even the Nils Zaman goal the other night against Ottawa, like shelter, not only was it a power move to go hard to the net, but just he he eventually had the puck taken off his stick, but just he had it inside. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he showed really good hands to get the puck inside. And ultimately it was Zaman that cleaned up the change, but or, or cleaned up the garbage, I should say, that was there. But at the end of the day, there's a ceiling here for this player. And I'm not suggesting that all of a sudden he's going to be the second coming of Todd Bertuzzi, but there is a ceiling here. And I think Ryan Johnson saw it when they were sharing a team during COVID with uh, with St. Louis. And, you know, I, I think that uh, that RJ is a pretty good talent evaluator and he's certainly doing a good job of development. But I think this is a player who can be, you know, a guy that scores 15 goals at some point down the road here and can get you 25 points in a bottom line capacity, right? So I do think that there's, there, you know, to quote Drancher, there's a lot of there there. So I think when you look at ceiling of all of these guys, uh, I think he's one. I, I think, um, you know, they've given him the odd spot on the PK and Rick Tockett says he likes what he sees to this point. But again, a, a guy that certainly has the skating ability and the length and things like that. He's got some traits that would indicate he could be an effective penalty killer. But that's one thing this organization really hasn't had enough of is they've had a rolling cast of bottom six forwards, but none of them have been effective penalty killers. They got Curtis Lazar this offseason with hopes he could be an effective penalty killer. And that just never happened. So uh, I think if if he can do that, if if uh, Oman can improve his faceoffs, I think they've got some guys here that uh, can be, as you as you say, a slightly above average fourth line. And you can provide some value on the margins for that. Um so I don't like that we both have the same answer in Dakota Joshua, but here we are. So let's see if we can have a different answer uh, as far as the defense is concerned. Because you've got Guillaume Brisebois, who just signed a two-year extension. Uh, on top of that, you've got uh, Noah Juleson, and you've got Christian Wolanin. You know, and the one thing about Phil DiGiuseppe, uh, as we go back to the forwards, PDG, in my opinion, on form, was good enough to have earned a spot. I'm not telling you he's, he's the greatest hockey player ever, but I think he was one of their best 12 forwards a year ago at camp and this yep. past year at camp and didn't get that spot. And, you know, he, and every time he comes, he shows it. He shows he belongs. So look at these three defensemen now. Christian Wolanin, and we talked about it earlier, and you were right. Like, stop talking about what should be a sixth defenseman. But as we project forward, um, he has absolutely lived up to what his training camp and preseason performance indicated he could do, right? That I know people refer to him as a quad A player, right? That he's probably, you know, a player that could dominate at the American Hockey League level, but doesn't quite belong at the NHL level. He looks just fine to me. I think Kyle Burroughs, you know, like why Riley Stillman was playing above him in so many situations under Bruce Boudreaux. I'm sure that was organization driven because they acquired him in a trade, but, you know, I like what I see from Burroughs. Uh, you know, some of these defensemen, are they part of the solution? 
Or are they merely going to be depth players that are quad A guys that can come up and help you? Can any of them be part of the Canucks top seven next season? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Will Annan. I think based off the last pod, it was like when we recorded then, it was so early in terms of still a relatively small sample. And so I was like, okay, like I was I was kind of like a let's see if he can kind of keep keep it up sort of thing. It's been great so far. And um and he surprised me. Like you're like I was probably I was, I was wrong for brushing that conversation aside so early. Ultimately, yeah. Love like, it. Just write that down. If, if we if our producer, uh if our producer Daniel Lehman could just clip that and we could play that in a promo, <laughs> uh boy genius saying I was wrong. Hey, and, I've and no problem was correct. Oh, yeah, I've been wrong. Honest. I've been wrong a lot of times in the past. I'll be wrong plenty of times in the future. I don't know, but um, but yeah, I mean, with Willannon, I don't think it's changed the trajectory of of his ceiling. But it does say two things in terms of one: could he be a six seven moving forward? Which is also why it was so like important to be able to get off of Stillman's cap it because it's like why would you pay almost double league minimum when you've got a guy like Willannon now who you're who based off the sample of games you're confident can be a reliable 6-7, right? And then uh, even with Kyle Burrows, like he's the sort of guy that I'm looking at now that the club has gone through the process, at least started it, in terms of re-signing some of these depth uh, players with Guillaume Brisba, with Phil Di-, Di Giuseppe. I hope Kyle Burrows is one of the guys that uh, that is next because I look at Burrows, he can play both sides, left and right. He sticks up for his teammates. Look at the way that he, after that Watson hit on Patterson, did not hesitate to go after Watson. Who else on this roster would have challenged Austin Watson? A guy who's a couple classes above uh, Burroughs in, in the weight category for sure. Like that is That was extremely ballsy for Burroughs to do that. And to me, that, that sort of stuff still matters in terms of having that toughness, especially now that uh, you've, de- you've dealt a player like... Um, like Luke Shen, just to be able to have a guy that can stick up for his teammates, build that camaraderie, have a bit of that Wolfpack mentality. I think that's important for this roster to have. He's great character in terms of with depth defensemen, just generally speaking, it's important to have guys that will always be a positive influence, will always have impeccable practice habits, will always be a breath of fresh air in the locker room, regardless of if they're playing or not. And that's what Burroughs is. It doesn't matter if he's in the lineup, if he's if he's out of the lineup. He's always in a great mood. He's always going to add positivity. So local kid as well. Like So, you know, that's great. And the other side of it that matters, I think, in looking at how well these depth, depth um, players have, um, have performed is I was having this conversation with Drancer about a week ago. If... You're seeing this level of step up where these guys are step where these Abbotsford guys are stepping in with with a player like Oliver Ekman Larson out and they're holding the fourth down competently just because they can skate well and they're not making major mistakes. I think that speaks volumes in terms of what impact a, a legitimately good defenseman like Philip Perona could have. Right? Like how like how much of a of a benefit are we could the Canucks see just in terms of addition by subtraction, you know, in terms of you know Oliver Ekman Larson, for example, or Tyler Myers, if you're able to um, move move on from him once his bonus is paid, like the, you know, it, it that's at least a positive too. Is not just can these guys sort of 
be depth contributors for next season because I don't ultimately see them doing much more than being number six, seven D. But it also says that once you bring in actually decent defensemen, you know, maybe you could see, a, a, you know, huge strides for this team on the back end. But there's some decisions to be made because you've seen them make one with Guillaume Brisebois, right? They gave him an extension. And, you know, with a lot of these things, you know, are you going to get a one-way deal or are you going to get a big minor league number? But you've got Cal Burroughs is going to be a UFA. Christian Wallanen, a UFA. Noah Juleson, an RFA. Uh, Ethan Bear, an RFA. We know they're they're down the road in terms of contract negotiations. It hasn't necessarily gone great, right? We've heard that they're talking about a one-year deal. They're talking about a three-year deal. There haven't been many discussions since the All-Star break, which is generally an indication of those discussions not necessarily going well. But Bear is prepared to bet on himself with a one-year deal if that's what it takes, right? Currently making $1.8 million. Uh, you know, we, we know that Bear is going to be back next year in some capacity, right? So you've got to make some decisions on some of these other guys. So do how we know What's that? Like, like, do we know that? I mean, do we know that with certainty? Because no, we don't. Like, but I think I think the reports to this point are that you know he would settle on a one year deal. Now, if he had a one year deal, does that all of a sudden make him a a much more movable asset? But it it would appear to me that they want him to be one of their top three right side defensemen. Do we not? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd assume probably. Um, the only thing that I you know was sort of wondering was because he's 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 played a decent chunk of minutes here. In terms of the arbitration case, like that, he's an interesting candidate. In terms of you've um, you, you've got to weigh your options, and you know I've been you know I've been wondering, uh, like I I never look at a situation with an R with, for a player with a decent potential RFA case and go that's a guarantee that he's going to be qualified. Again, I'm with you in the sense that he like I'll, I'm assuming he's probably going to be back. I was just curious because I was like like do we know that? Sort of thing. So yeah, for me, I I'm expecting him back. I, I'm not I'm okay. not telling you that uh, um, that that's a, that that's a done deal. But certainly, all signs point to you know on a worst case scenario, him coming back on a one year deal and and betting on himself. It certainly sounds like he's prepared to do that. I don't know that they just let him walk away and don't qualify him. Fair, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, especially given the the track record the organization has had, and at one point eight million, I, I know his cap hit is two uh, is two point two. Like I I, I just I'm trying to get a sense of um, where that qualifying offer is going to sit in, in terms of whether or not there's going to be an advantage then to try to get him extended at a lower number and what that would look like, right? But nonetheless, I'm fully expecting him to be part of this blue line next year. So do any of these other guys wind up with one-way deals or do they wind up with 500000 on a two, uh, minor league salary on a two-way deal? You know, who do you prioritize? Can they get more? Can a Wolanin or a Burroughs have they done enough that they can get more in the in the form of opportunity elsewhere? Can someone look at these two guys and say, "Okay, you're going to be, you know, in our top six, and we're gonna we're gonna pay you accordingly, and we're gonna term you accordingly"? I'm, you know, I'm curious because I think all of these guys provide value to this organization. So you, you certainly hope there's a way they can keep them all in some capacity, and whether they're ready to just go and be that quad A player, I think is a good thing, and this organization needs more of that, right? If uh, they want to, it, like, sorry to jump in. If they want to, they'll they'll be able to keep them for sure. Like you were mentioning, in terms of opportunity elsewhere, the thing is, they're like frozen Milanin are flying under the radar outside of Vancouver, right? Both teams of them are twenty seven. Exactly, and especially now that you're at a point in the season where teams are like they're just not going to put as much stock in a team like Vancouver's performance this season overall. Nobody's really going to be paying attention to the Canucks, so. 
if the Canucks want those guys to be back, I don't expect it'll be too difficult at all, which is good flexibility options to have. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I'd, I'd like to see all of those guys back and we'll see if they can make that happen. Uh, as for us, uh, we're about to wrap up here. The Canucks have one more game remaining on a season-altering homestand that has seen them win far too many games than many tankists would like, but here we are. So they play Dallas tomorrow night before heading out on the road for three. Uh, they've got uh, Thursday in Arizona, uh, Saturday and Sunday back-to-back in Southern California, first LA, then Anaheim. Our next show is going to be next Monday, a week from today on the 20th, before the Canucks play two more home games after that. And then at some point uh, over the course of uh, this month, the rest of the month, Drancer and I are going to do at least one more live room. But the next two shows uh, for the remainder of March are both going to be on Monday. So today the 13th, then the 20th, then the 27th. And if you're looking for other podcast options, we've got Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, and Michael Russo. They recap the GM meetings from Florida on an all-new roundtable on The Athletic Hockey Show on Wednesday. Uh, you can also get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. Anything you want to add before we jump? No. Nope. Four straight. How many will it be when we come back after three more or after four more games? They'll have played four. Okay, give me an over-under. What do we got? Four more games before our next show. I mean... They're going to win three. I'm telling you right now. Three. Over under, over under two and a half. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. I don't know. I'm not a better. I've never placed a sports bet in my life. So you, that's the one thing you have not learned from your boy Drancer. I haven't, and, and I don't want to get into it. Don't either. do it. Don't do it. I don't want to. I can steer clear. Yeah, numbers guy like you, you would flat out uh, go in the wrong direction uh, on that experiment. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for logging on. We will be back next Monday.